Uh, Daniel and the lion's den. Uh, this is one of the best-known stories in the Bible. And the story, of course, most identified with Daniel. And, you know, I, I always try to think of a, what am I going to call a sermon? There's nothing else to call it. It's Daniel and the lion's den. I mean, there really is nothing else to say. Now, even the uh, children's version <clears throat> of this story, the very various ones I've watched a couple on YouTube, are fairly accurate. But the political intrigue surrounding the story is not always well known. The opening verse of Daniel 6 introduces Darius the Mede, who some say is a fictional character and he never existed. Now, last week, if you were here, I uh, pointed out that Belshazzar was considered in the same way until 37 different documents were found outside the Bible confirming he did exist all along. Now, this is the case regarding Darius, except there are no documents outside of the book of Daniel that confirms Darius's existence. And we shouldn't even need any. I mean, I just love it that Belshazzar was written up. He never existed. And then they prove he did exist. And if you'll remember when I talked about it last week, I pointed out someone said that there are no, uh, you know, uh, there are no documents that have real authority that are good documents to prove that Belshazzar ever existed. And I made the point that, well, the, I guess the Bible isn't a document of much authority. And so if Daniel, who wrote about Belshazzar, uh, thinks that Darius existed, I think he does too. Now, Joyce Baldwin, a very good commentator on the book of Daniel, writes, to assume that Darius the Mede did not exist, and so to dismiss the evidence provided by this book, Daniel, is high-handed and unwise especially in the light of its vindication in connection with Belshazzar, who at one time was reckoned to be a fictional character. So she says what I just said. Uh, or maybe I just said what she says. <laughs> there are many documents available that cause people to guess who Daniel might be talking about. And it becomes incredibly complicated explaining all the possibilities. But if that's the kind of thing you like to delve into, any good commentary will have all the possible, uh, possibilities of who this person was, what his real name was. I believe that Darius the Mede and Cyrus were the same person. It was common in that day for someone to be called by two names, such as Daniel himself and his three friends, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. That was their Babylonian names. So Daniel and his three friends had two names. Uh, they, had, they had both Hebrew names and Babylonian names, and we have already seen that they were used, the names, interchangeably to distinguish which small g god or large g god, Yahweh, was being referred to. In Daniel chapter 6, verse 28, we read this. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Now the sentence can be translated in English this way. Daniel prospered <clears throat> in the reign of Darius, even the reign of Cyrus the Persian. So same person, different names, very common in biblical times that we're studying here. So here's the picture. Belshazzar has been defeated and killed. And of course, we saw the writing on the wall and all that last week. Babylon has been taken over by Cyrus, as had been predicted well over 100 years previously by Isaiah the prophet. Now, if you need proof that the Bible is an amazing supernatural book, it actually says that it named Cyrus like 100 years before he was born. When the new king, Darius, took over, he had to determine how to govern this land that he now occupied. Last week, I used the analogy of our presidential elections when the new president, 
then decides who to keep from the previous administration. Clearly, Darius chose to use the existing structure to govern the country, but then something becomes very obvious as you read the whole story. Darius forged a very deep relationship, friendship with Daniel. Now, it it doesn't say it here, but we know historically that when Babylon fell, there was a decree issued that returned the Jews back to their homeland. We'll actually study that in some detail later on in Daniel. Many went back, but some stayed in Babylon. Daniel was 80 years old, plus even, and he had lived in Babylon since he was a teenager and always with the pleasure of the king. So now he decides to remain, hoping his relationship with the new king would better serve his people. Therefore, he remained in Babylon, which is now Media Persia, a much bigger empire than Babylon was. You remember the statue, the the gold head? That's gone. Now we're down to the silver in the picture of the the whole world, uh, right to the second coming of Christ. Darius and Daniel, again, became close friends. What a great picture of what is possible with God. Darius and Daniel had opposing religious beliefs, but Daniel's respect for this pagan king, along with his, that is Daniel's obvious relationship with God, changed history and predicted accurately the plan of God for the ages. And and I, I want us to think about this because we're so divided as a country and in ways that are, as Christians, we must not be. This pagan king was like of the devil. (laughs) And yet Daniel respected him and served him with absolute excellence. Now, certainly, Daniel had reviewed the history of his time uh, serving Nebuchadnezzar And Darius would have heard of Daniel's great gifts. He would have heard of the handwriting on the wall that we talked about last week. Darius admired and trusted Daniel completely. So verse 1 and 2. It pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom. That's like states or provinces in Canada or, you know, that kind of thing with three administrators over the 120. And one of them, of the three, was Daniel. I have always thought Daniel is my second favorite person, not counting Jesus, of course, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, especially next to Joseph, who's my favorite in many ways. But Daniel's amazing. He was a finisher in life. There are many quick starters, but few finishers. It takes love and grit and perseverance and hope to finish well. The satraps, it tells us here, still in verse 1 and 2, the satraps were made accountable to them, Daniel and the other three, so that the king might not suffer loss. So he, these three especially, and among them Daniel even more so, the king trusted completely. The satraps he wasn't too sure of, so he needed to make sure that they had accountability. Now, Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king even planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Now, all of this would have been known. You know, they didn't have CNN, Fox News, CBC, CNBC, uh, MSNBC, the two people that watch that, and all of that type of thing. <laughs> oh, sorry. <clears throat> but uh, uh, everybody knew that the king might do this, and that Daniel could become uh, like, you know, the, the second in command, uh, only under the king. And uh, so I'm sure Darius would have interviewed Daniel soon after the defeat of Babylon. Uh, since his reputation would have preceded him even among the enemies of Babylon. Daniel had a great attitude, even though his whole life 
was lived in captivity from the land and temple that represents the God he never stopped living for. And he would never betray his faith in that God. So this is a real good study for us in the, uh, in the divisions that we see today. Verse 4. At this, time, at this uh, the administrators and the satraps... Now, well, wait a minute. Now, what do you mean at this? What's that all about? Well, Daniel was so distinguished, the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. They, they knew that. And at this, because they knew that, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs. But they were unable to do so. I had to keep myself from doing it, and I'm not going to do it, but just say it. Uh, I mean, there are so many uh, governing officials today in America that, that it's sort of like there's one, I won't say the name, but I'm sure some of you know, who's lied about everything, about uh, which schools he went to, what education he has, uh, everything. And he's uh, now going to be, he's now been indicted, but he's still says he's going to run again. Ha! I mean, it's just, you can't make those things up. But here's Daniel, because in government, corruption is always going to be the case, especially when government has more and more power. The more power government has, then the more corrupt the government will become. And this was a all of these satraps were in it for themselves. There's lots of corruption here, except for Daniel. And so they could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligence. And verse 5 reads, finally, these men said, so they're having meetings together, we'll never find any basis for the charges against this man Daniel unless it has something to do with the law of his God. Now, there are two things to note here. Daniel was blameless in the way he conducted himself regarding political affairs. We've talked about that. And second, he was blameless in the way he lived for God in the midst of a pagan and idolatrous culture. It is clear that Daniel's enemies knew they couldn't prove anything against him politically, and they also knew he would never compromise his commitment to his God. And it turns out they would take advantage of the predictable way he would respond to their diabolical trap designed to kill him. So verse 6 reads, uh, the administrators, that's two of them, remember, and the satraps, 120 of them, notice Daniel isn't there. They went as a group to the king, and they all came together to the king. May King Darius live forever. Bunch of hypocrites. This was a normal greeting, as they were being careful to do everything correctly so that the king would be receptive to their suggestion. And, of course, he's the king, and all of these people have come around who are uh, adoring him. At least it looks like that. Verse 7, the royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, there's a lot of them, and governors. And they're talking, by the way, it'll help, I should have read it that way. I mean, they're talking to the king. King, the royal administrators, the prefects, the satraps, the advisors, and governors have all agreed, because this is obviously the right thing, that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or man during the next 30 days, except to you, your majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, your majesty, issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the laws of the Medes and the Persians which cannot be repealed. Uh, we've had a lot of changes in our Constitution, but there are no changes in the laws of the Medes and the Persians ever. The law was more powerful than the king. 
And so, verse 9, King Darius put the decree in writing. I mean, I think Darius saw this action as the desire of these men to honor him and pledge their undying loyalty to him. This would also be an opportunity for the king to make it clear who was in, uh, who was in charge since the defeat of the Babylonians. Darius would be acting in a priestly role, not that he himself was God, he wouldn't do that, but instead he was the temporary mediator between all the gods, all the gods. This, so there was no, it didn't say you can't pray, just for 30 days, uh, you can't pray to any of your gods, and you can pray to Darius who will represent the gods. Uh, this would be a way to test the loyalty of those in the new government and a way to unify the kingdom. And at this point, Darius couldn't have imagined just how evil these men were whose only goal was to eliminate this 80-year-old man named Daniel. These diabolical men had the law signed as fast as possible in case someone, even the king, figured it out and figured out what they were doing. But Daniel knew exactly what they were doing. He knew this was all going on. He wasn't there, but he knew. And he didn't change his daily private practice of prayer. He had prayed three times a day for most of his life, and his relationship with God was such that Daniel trusted God's will completely. Completely. I'll have to tell you, and I'm being very serious, it almost ruined me today, this study, because it really is a study on prayer. I mean, I'm not, not that I'm going to do a lot of stuff. I'm going to do some stuff here in prayer, but it's a study on prayer, and it's a challenge to me to sort of expose to me how weak my prayer life is. And I downloaded a couple of books. Ian Bounds has a great book on prayer I haven't read in years. And um, I need to do a little bit more about that. So here again, we see Daniel in his old age, still going on fearlessly and zealously for the Lord. No lessening of commitment. He is old and intending to finish well. And that must be all our goals. There will always be temptations to compromise our level of commitment. Satan will see to it. But we must not ever give in, regardless of the cost. We are not to be ignorant of Satan's schemes. The Ephesians chapter 6 makes that very clear. We are in a constant spiritual battle, and we must not let our guard down. Now, Peter, for instance, said something that really fits here. Uh, the apostle Peter, 1 Peter 5.8, says to us as Christians, stay alert, Watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Over the years, I've tried to learn a bit about lions, and I know that their roar is... is I've never actually heard... I saw a lion in the wild, but I've never heard a lion roar. And I've watched some YouTube videos and stuff like that. The roar can, can terrify an animal so much it just freezes and can't even move. And uh, hear the roar of a lion that's about ready to devour you would be the most uh, frightening thing you could ever imagine. And that's the imagery that we have. That's the hatefulness of Satan toward all of God's people. Now, verse 10. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem, Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God. Now, here's the important one, six words, just as he had done before. And then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. Now, Jerusalem was still in ruins, and Daniel had been praying for the restoration of his homeland for a long time. He wasn't about to change his habit of prayer for any reason at all. 
Daniel was saturated in the scriptures. Someone wrote, Daniel does not question, doubt, or worry. He acts. Maybe he was remembering what the psalmist wrote in Psalm 55, 16, and 17. It reads this way, But I will call on God, and the Lord will rescue me. Morning, noon, and night, three times. I cry out in my distress, and the Lord hears my voice. Morning doesn't mean three times, but it means to be always praying, really. Or it could be he was thinking of Romans 8.28, where Paul says, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Now, I know some of you are pretty shocked. You're thinking, Pastor Carl, the Apostle Paul hadn't been born yet. What are you talking about? Well, I know that. I'm surprised Valerie didn't say anything. <laughs> but jo- Joseph was born, had been born, and said exactly the same as Paul wrote when his brothers came to him for help after trying to murder him. Oh, you know the story. Uh, they tried to get rid of him, and they were trying to kill him, but they ended up selling him as a slave, and he's been gone for many, 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 many years, and as far as they know, he's either dead or, or uh, he's a slave someplace. They're, they're gone. He, they got rid of him. They hated him. He was his father's favorite, and they didn't like that. But what happened is that there was a famine in the land came many, many years later. Uh, here's a man that almost two decades he's been in jail and slaveries and all kinds of stuff, and now he's the second most important person in the world of that time. And he's in charge of saving people from dying in the famine. And if anybody wanted to live, they had to come to Joseph to get food. And so the brothers came to Joseph. They didn't know they were coming to Joseph. They came to Egypt, and they came before Joseph. And there's a lot of things happened, but eventually he made himself known to them. It terrified them. I mean, it really terrified them. But Joseph said exactly the same as Paul wrote in uh, Romans 8.28. He said to his brothers, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done and the saving of many lives. He reconciled to his brothers. And this terrible famine, this terrible circumstance uh, of Joseph being, they tried to get killed and all that, turned into a lifesaver, saved his brother's life, saved the Egyptians' lives, saved the line of the Messiah. So in that way, he even saved our lives. Because the Messiah came. Well, we know that Daniel spent time reading Jeremiah's writings. We'll see it again later in Daniel. Therefore, Daniel knew God would fulfill his promises. Promises to restore the land to his people, the Jews. That's what he definitely had been praying for. And in Jeremiah 29, 10 to 14, it reads this way. And Daniel would have known this passage by heart. This is what the Lord says. You will be in Babylon for 70 years, but then I'll come and do for you all the good things I have promised, and I will bring you home again, for I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Many of us have memorized this verse. They are plans for good and not for evil or for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. In those days when you pray, I will listen. And if you look for me, and I love this word, this English word, uh, it doesn't matter what the Hebrew word says, wholeheartedly, wholeheartedly. I was watching a Keller sermon and he today, and he talked about prayer. I only watched half of it because I was so convicted. And he picked up a piece of paper, and it was something that uh, people... That's, uh, I think, Wesley's time or something. They read uh, every night before they went to sleep. And one of the things they were asked, he even says when he's doing it, he's holding it up before this audience of young people, and he says uh, there's seven different things that they thought of. He said, I'm not going to read them all. And there were more than seven. Uh, three of them will be enough to make you feel really bad. <laughs> and one of them just said, did I pray today 
with all of my might. Wow, that's something. Every day they were asking that of themselves. But God says, if you look for me wholeheartedly, you'll find me. I'll be found by you, says the Lord. I will end your captivity and restore your fortunes. I'll gather you out of the nations where I sent you and will bring you home again to your own land. So Daniel actually knew the date he was captured, of course, and the date when he would see God return the land to his people. And that date was fast approaching, and Daniel would live to see it. So he knew how to pray and was not about to waste his life trying to avoid trials and troubles, but he went to God in wholehearted biblical prayer, clearly unfazed by this terrible scheme to feed him to the lions. We already studied the story of Daniel's three friends, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego as their their names, not their Hebrew names, who refused to bow to Nebuchadnezzar's statue or to be burned alive in the fiery furnace. And Daniel was not about to bow to Darius's written law. Can we imagine? Can you just imagine someone saying, Daniel, wait a minute, come on. You've been faithful for decades. And God is returning the people to the land soon. The decree is for only for 30 days, for goodness sakes. It doesn't make any sense to be killed over this issue and miss the return of your people who you have so diligently prayed for. So lay low for only 30 days and defeat these deceivers. Daniel would rather be eaten by lions than stop praying to God. That's pretty challenging. I mean, that's true relationship. Now, let's remind ourselves of what Daniel's three friends said when they were given the similar situation where if you don't bow down to the statue, you'd be burned alive in the furnace. And so in Daniel chapter 3, we studied it. And here they are before Nebuchadnezzar. And they said, if we are thrown into the blazing furnace... The God we serve is able to save us from it. And he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. Wow. (laughs) I mean, that's really worth spending some time just thinking about. The question for us is, Do I have a daily relationship with God that causes me to pray with that kind of fervor? No experience, no gift or manifestation can take the place of persistent, prevailing prayer. Prayer is a two-way communication. We must pray according to the Scriptures, but we must also be persistent in prayer, listening for the voice of God, expecting Him to answer. This is an old illustration, but I, I, it just really works. A woman telephoned the manager of a large opera house and told him she had lost a valuable diamond pin the night before at the concert. The man asked her to hold the line, and a search was made, and the brooch was found. But when he got back to the phone, the woman had hung up. He waited for her to call again and even put a notice in the paper, but He heard nothing further. What a strange and foolish person, we say, but isn't this the way some of us pray? We tell the Lord all about our needs and then fail to hold the line. As a result, we miss the joy of answered prayer and the thrill and reward of a persistent faith. A most important word for the spiritual life or life in general is the word discipline. Discipline has all kinds of connotations. God disciplines those he loves. But I'm talking about discipline, uh, the, the willingness to keep persevering and moving forward no matter what. Daniel's prayer life had discipline, regularity. It was a lifetime habit to pray three times a day. He didn't just start doing it to get in the king 
you know, to show the king, I'm going to show you. They, that, that was what he always did. And everybody knew that. That's why they were doing the decree, because they all knew that he would still pray and that he did pray every day. There can never be spontaneity in any part of life without discipline, without discipline. Because if you're just meandering around, you don't even know when something great has happened to you. You need to be going somewhere. And if you have discipline, sometimes the worst roadblocks of all become your best friends later. I've had that experience in my life more than once. The more time we pray alone in our private life, the more powerful we will be in public, especially during trials. Some of you won't remember General Schwarzkopf. Did I say that right, Jim? Schwarzkopf? <laughs> yeah. Uh, it was one of the great biographies ever read. and he, It was very public. He who sweats most in peace bleeds least in war. What a great statement. You know, I'm afraid to preach without having prayed. It's common for me to come to the altar on Sunday and Wednesday or pray with someone else before. And on Sunday especially, I get down and say, God, bless these people with this pitiable sermon. And he does it. (laughs) And then I get down after and say, thank you. Would you do it again? (laughs) I want to finish strong like Daniel, and I know I won't do so if I don't practice my daily spiritual disciplines for all of my life. So, verse 12, we have to get back on schedule here. They went to the king. Now they had the proof. And they spoke to the king about his royal decree. So this is probably a smaller group. They just came and said, oh, did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days anyone who prays to any god or human being except to you, your majesty, would be thrown into the lion's den? They were making sure that the decree had been duly drawn up. But I also think here, I, I would be willing to bet that Darius is getting pretty suspicious of what was going on. And the king answered, the decree stands in accordance with the laws of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed. He's sort of like, yes, of course, you know it. Now, I already mentioned that Darius would have thought this decree was a good idea. He would want to know if there were any people in his kingdom who were not loyal to him. But he surely wasn't prepared for what comes next. Uh, There's no, you couldn't over-dramatize this. Verse 13. Then they said to the king, Daniel, as soon as they said the word, he knew he was in trouble. There's no doubt. Who is one of the exiles from Judah, kind of anti-Semitic here, pays no attention to you, your majesty, or to the decree you put in writing. He still prays. Notice that what they said. He still prays three times a day. You see, it was a setup. Obviously, we know that. The decree didn't say the people couldn't pray. It said exactly which God they could pray to, which was no God except to the king. And they didn't have to mention that Daniel was praying to Yahweh, as even Darius knew Daniel would never pray to one of their gods, much less himself. And when the king heard this, and talk about understatement and just reading it, he was greatly distressed. I mean, this had to be... Literally the worst day of his life. And then it says he was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. Now, this was probably after Daniel's noon prayer time, and the law required the sentence be carried out the same day as the offense. Darius was grieved angry that he had been duped. He would have called on the best legal minds, the best constitutional scholars of all, and brought them around him to see if there's any way out of this, if there's any other thing he could do. And so now his friend Daniel was to be killed. He couldn't stop it. He would lose face too much. But he just couldn't stop it. It was the law. Verse 15 says, Then the men went as a group to the king and said to him, 
Remember your majesty that according to the law, the Medes and Persians, no decree or edict that the king issues can be changed. And verse 16, so the king gave the order and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. I mean, when I, I've, I've taught through Daniel, this would be at least the fourth time. I'm always trying to imagine what it had been like. This was a big deal. The king gave the order. They had to go and get Daniel. Some time's going by here. They brought him to the king, and they would have had to take him to march him you know, into the lion's den. And the king said to Daniel, I, I thought about this. Like, how did he say this? The king was right there where Daniel was. He didn't yell this out or anything. He just said, may your God whom you serve continually rescue you. He's saying, Daniel, I've done everything I can do. Now, now your God whom you serve continually must deliver you. And this could only be said because of how Daniel lived and served Darius and others with respect and competence. It causes Darius to speak more than he knew. But in a short while, that will seem like an eternity to Darius, Darius's life will be changed by Daniel's God. And so, verse 17, a stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den. And the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the rings of his nobles so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. And then, verse 18, the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating and without entertainment being brought to him. And he could not sleep. This was the king's most painful night ever. This was Daniel's most challenging trial ever. At 80 plus, probably 85 years old. And he had been so faithful all his life. There's a painting, uh, I've seen it in several forms, by Britton Rivera in 1982, and it shows supposedly Daniel standing there. Actually, I had a choice. Of, I actually learned a lot about this painting, but there's, there was more than one, and the one I should have used had Daniel looking up while they're there. And it's really an amazing Sight just to try to imagine. Who's heard of the Schofield Reference Bible? Schofield Reference Bible? I mean, when I became a Christian, the Schofield Reference Bible was like, that was gold. You had to own one. King James Version, but boy, I'll tell you, you could find out just about anything you wanted to know. It was encyclopedic and used widely by many, many people. Uh, he, Schofield, was a hopeless drunk. And uh, he got saved and delivered from his drunkenness. And one day he was walking along and he saw the picture, not that exact one, but one like that with the guy looking up. And he was stunned by it. And he just stared at it. And he was at a position where he had stopped drinking and, and all of that, but he was have so much temptations. And he says in his own writing, he says, I looked at all those lions, and every one of them was a problem. And I have that many problems too. And Daniel stood in front of his lions, his problems, looking up to God. And at that moment, I did that. And the rest is history in the Schofield Reference Bible. In the, uh, if you look in the line of Bibles, it'll always be known at some level. It just shows what God can do. He can turn the worst things into the best things over and over and over again. Well, now, verse 19. At the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. And when he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice. Now, just try to imagine this. 
he's, what he could imagine is Daniel had probably had every bone in his body broken and they'd chewed away and eaten off the meat off it, all of these lions. Uh, you know, there's, there's, there's no hope here. And these weren't pet lions. <laughs> they were lions. And he, this anguished voice, I think it would have been really hoarse. Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to rescue you from the lions? And the anguished voice demonstrated the doubt that Darius had, but the fact he called out to Daniel demonstrates the hope he also had. I guess we could say he had hope against hope that Daniel just might still be alive. And Daniel answered, oh, this had to be amazing. May the king live forever. Now, I, here's what I think. I think he answered with the calmest voice you could imagine. May the king live forever. My God sent his angel and he shut the mouths of the lions and they have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight, nor have I ever done any wrong before you, your majesty. Wow, I mean, you can hear and feel the calm of Daniel. He was innocent before God and before the king. It's a common statement. I've heard it, I don't know how many times, it's better to be a child of faith in a den of lions than a king in a palace without faith. And people want to know, like, who was the angel? And there's lots of ink been spilled on this. Some believe it was simply an angel from God, like it says. Others think that the angel was a theophany, which is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. Regardless, the lions did not touch Daniel. And in verse 23, it says, The king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. Overjoyed. Again, understatement. And he's probably trying to stop from dancing up and down. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found in him because he had trusted in his God. And in my mind, I see Daniel being just hugged by Darius. Forget that he was a king or anything else. And you know, this was because of Daniel's faith. Hebrews chapter 11 is the hall of faith. And if you've not read it or read it recently, you should read it again. And there's one little section of it where it talks about all these men and women of faith and what faith is all about. And in Hebrews 11.33, it says, By faith, these people in that chapter overthrew kingdoms, ruled with justice, and received what God had promised them. Now listen to this. They shut the mouths of lions, quenched the flames of fire. That's Daniel and his three friends, and escaped death by the edge of the sword. Their weakness was turned to strength. The fire, you remember that? Did not even leave a smell on Daniel's three friends in the furnace. And the lions did not leave one single mark on Daniel. Now Spurgeon said that it was a good thing the lions didn't try to eat Daniel. Uh, they never would have enjoyed him because he was 50% grit and 50% backbone. <laughs> now we can't imagine the joy of the king. The question often asked is, did Darius become a believer or a Christian or a believer at that time? Actually, it's impossible to know for sure. There's, there's too much mixture here to know because people like Darius believed in all kinds of gods and to bring another god into the pantheon of gods isn't that hard to do. But I can't imagine him wanting to worship any other god than Yahweh after what he had just witnessed and what he knew of Daniel's long life. So I'll ask him in heaven if he was saved or not. Same as... We had a similar thing with uh, Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 24. At the king's command, the men who had falsely accused Daniel were brought in and thrown into the lion's den, along with their wives and children. And before they reached the floor of the den, the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. Now, this is a cruel punishment but fully in line with what was normal for the pagan kingdoms of that day. The reason for the children being killed and the rest of the family is so they couldn't plan revenge on the king. That was the thinking. 
But our Bible teaches that children are not to be punished for the sins of their fathers. But Medo-Persia did not follow the law of the Bible. It was very satanic, you could say. Verse 25 and 26. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language in all the earth. May you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. I wonder if he's thinking about the statue that Daniel uh, used to predict the future of the world. Uh, Daniel 2.44 He's speaking, Daniel is, about the, all of these, the gold, the, uh, the Medo-Persian, the silver empire, the bronze, and all the way down to Rome. And, and then there's a rock that comes, <clears throat> not by human hands, and throws and destroys it all. And in Daniel 2.44, it says, In the time of those kings, Nebuchadnezzar, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, just like Darius said nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. That's exactly what Darius had said. Now, his kingdom, Medo-Persia, was going to collapse. Rome was going to collapse. All these other places are going to collapse, but there's going to be one that's forever, and it'll be that God. That's why I think probably uh, that's the God he's now believing in. Verse 27, this is Darius again. He rescues... And he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. Now, God doesn't perform miracles to show off. He performs miracles to identify who he is. Daniel wasn't saved so he could live until 90 or 100. He was saved so God could be glorified. Daniel had no desire to be what we call famous today. But he would have a great desire for God to be known by everyone. This story is a remarkable picture of the gospel. I've used this several times. I love this. Daniel was falsely accused. Jesus was falsely accused. Jesus was arrested after praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. Daniel was arrested for praying on the roof of his residence. Pilate, like Darius, tried everything to see Pilate tried, tried everything to see Jesus. Darius tried everything to see Daniel released. Both Jesus and Daniel were turned over to be executed by a manipulated law. Daniel did not protest. Jesus did not protest. See Isaiah 53. Darius sealed the entrance of the lion's den, meant to be Daniel's tomb. Jesus' tomb was sealed. Daniel came out of the den alive. Jesus came out of the tomb alive. I mean, the gospel is everywhere through the Old Testament. And that's one of the clearest places. You, you don't have to force anything to make that fit. Because it just does. It's real. It really happened that way. Now, verse 28, the last verse. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus, the Persian. Now, notice the word prospered. The message of these first six chapters of Daniel show us that God is in control and will take care of us. If we trust him, we will prosper. I prefer the word because... I prefer the word flourish. I really like that word. It is common for sermons on Daniel to be entitled, Dare to be a Daniel. The question then is, what does that mean? It means faithfulness for all of life. If I want to be a Daniel, I must first of all be committed to daily, determined, lifetime obedience. <clears throat> Storch, a commentator, writes, No revival swept through the captive nation as a result of Daniel's ministry. No national repentance in Babylon like Jonah saw in Nineveh, where everybody repented. 
Few people seem to learn anything from Daniel. For all his wisdom, integrity, and faithfulness, Daniel reaped the jealousy of peers, the hatred of the ungodly, a plot against his life, and a death sentence in a lion's den. But he was one of those that does not need to make a big splash, but just wants to prove faithful to what he saw as a faithful God. So, we should be, we should be living faithful lives, not expecting that the world will ever notice us in any way, but anticipating the rewards in heaven. Well done, good and faithful servant. What, what would we do without the faithful among us who pray, who teach Sunday school, who work in the nursery, who give as God prospers, who prepare our food, who work with our teens, who visit the sick, who teach in the school, who witness to their friends and those they meet in the marketplace, who show up rain or shine to help us worship and watch online, or who give their lives away in an obscure part of the world that no one ever heard of, what would we do without the non-famous Christian? If it is only Jesus we want to make famous, not ourselves. Daniel is alive today in heaven, and so is Jesus. The Apostle Paul wrote these incredible words. 2 Corinthians 5, 6-9. So we are always confident, even though we know that as long as we live in these bodies, we are not at home with the Lord. For we live by believing and not by seeing. Yes, we are fully confident, and we would rather be away from these earthly bodies. For them we'll be at home with the Lord. So whether we're here in this body or away from this body, our goal is to please him. That's what it means to be a Daniel. Stand with me and we'll pray and then worship a little bit more. Father, I just thank you for Daniel, the story, the man, the, the way he lived. Uh, Father, the more that I teach on it and think about it and try to imagine that we're talking about someone who lived probably to 90 years old, a young teenager who grew up in a satanic land and was respected by all of the kings that came along. Amazing. Help us to be that kind of men and women who pray for those leaders above us that are, that are supposed to be taking care of us and maybe not doing a great job, but to pray for them anyhow and to respect them regardless and to live our lives as men and women of prayer and of practice who devour your word, read your Bible every day, pray with wholehearted hope that you will even cause another revival before it all ends. Oh, Father, we'd like you to have the trumpet sound and the angel shout and for Jesus to return, but pretty well all of us in this room know people we really care about that aren't yet saved, so maybe you could give us a little more time and help us to show them what a Christian looks like like Daniel and it's in Jesus' name that we pray this Amen Amen